This episode is sponsored by our friends at Musicbed. Find the perfect song for your films with a highly curated roster featuring hundreds of artists, bands, and composers. As a good listener, you can get your first month of subscription free or 20% off a single song purchase. Just enter promo code GOOD when you check out. This episode of Good is also sponsored by Lemieux Company. Let's hear from the man himself, Wilson Lemieux. Are you recording me right now? Yeah. Lemieux Company. That's L-E-M-I-E-U-X. Lemieux Company. One of the best production companies around. Also this season, we're continuing to give away a ton of content over at Patreon, sharing treatments, behind-the-scenes photos, and ways to interact with our guests from each episode. To become a patron, check out patreon.com slash goodthepodcast. Hey guys, my name's Christian Schultz, and this is Good. Hey, good listeners, Christian here. I have to ask you a favor. If you wouldn't mind taking a second and going to iTunes and reviewing the show, you wouldn't believe how much it actually helps us. So this is the last time I'll ever ask you. Well, at least for a while. Promise. On this episode of Good, we have my friend Jordan Oram, who's a Canadian cinematographer and very serendipitous, very serend, and very serendipitous. We got to work together on uh, a Drake music video here in New Orleans for a song called In My Feelings, which was um, a wild ride. It was very hot. There was a lot of locations. I think we spent um, too many hours on Bourbon Street, too many hours that I'm comfortable with on Bourbon Street, but uh, it was in the name of Drake, so we did it. So it might be a good idea for you to go watch that music video because uh, we talk about that music video a lot, but we talk about a lot of things. We talk about uh, life offset and how that may inform, you know, how you are on set. And I think that's really something to to rehash every once in a while and what that means and how to be successful all around in your life and not just on set. So I hope you enjoy this interview with my good friend and cinematographer, Jordan Oram. Instagram e-commerce is trying to persuade me to purchase these actually yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's got caught in the algorithm bro oh man i'm stuck in the algorithm i yeah. think every other day i'm ordering something off of instagram <laughs> i they're swear good. they're it's amazing true. aside from this one toothbrush that i swore by and i got it and it was the most flimsy piece of plastic i'd ever what purchased. was it which one it was oh i don't remember the brand it was boise boise toothbrushes interesting i believe but it was so cool it's like this really interesting matte black had like a mm-hmm. tongue scraper on the back, mm-hmm. um, and it was supposed to be biodegradable. They had monthly subscriptions on New Bristles, so I thought I was getting a steal, and then I got it. I was like, oh, this is trash. It was actually like 3D printed, and it just like... Yeah, it was <laughs> terrible, because I, I had hyped it up so much to all my friends, because I'm really big on personal hygiene, so all of my friends were like, oh yeah, Jordan's talking about this toothbrush. <laughs> and then I get this toothbrush, and everyone's like, where's your Instagram photos? Like, how can we not... You know, right. pumping this toothbrush, and I was like, "Well, that toothbrush is not worth the fifty dollars that I just paid for it." 
Right. <laughs> I have this I have this imagination of you sort of running like a, a health blog, you know? Yes. Like a like a self help kind of uh, guru, but just for hygiene. Yeah. It would be that ideal. Is, that is something that I'm gonna wait for this helicopter. Like seriously, God, come on. You know, the small amount of time that how long did we actually hang out in New Orleans? I think um, not long days. enough. Not right. long enough. I think it was about two days, three days, um, which felt like a blur, to be honest, with the, yeah, the landscape that we did. were kind of going into. But yeah, that was a, a very interesting. Yeah, that and the heat stroke was. Oh my gosh, um, dude! Pretty intense. That job <laughs> taught me that no matter what job I'm doing, I have to have an AC, a second AC. Yeah. Yeah. So you just recently kind of traveled for a bit, right? Yeah, I'd been wanting to do a lot of discovery and travel. Um, so it was something that I'd been wanting to do for about 10 years of my life. Um, and I found it very important to kind of get away and to just feel a level of gratitude that I hadn't really put myself into a level of vulnerability that right. I was able to accept the blessing. Um, so I took off, went to Thailand by myself with a bunch of cameras, a bunch of film and a little <laughs> bit of clothes. And, uh, it was it was magnificent. Like I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about the world that we live in, the culture that I'm in, inspired by, and just took a lot of things back with me to come home. So I think it's very important to kind of see where you're at in the world and then kind of bring it back and try to influence your community. What was the? What do you feel like you went into it with, like baggage or whatever? And, and did you feel like you came out of it with something different? Oh, totally. I went there with an expectation of everything that I see and hear from people online. Right. Um, but what I didn't realize was how much different it was actually going to be once I touched foot on Asian soil. And as soon as I got to the airport, I quickly realized that I, as much as preparation as I'd done, I, I wasn't as prepared as I wanted to be. I got to the airport and I was like, oh my gosh, where am I staying? <laughs> and, <laughs> and how am I getting there? And I didn't take out enough, like I took out money, but I didn't think of like a SIM card and I didn't think about right. you know, specific headphones. So you just or, went. Like, you just I literally went. just booked a trip maybe two weeks prior. I was in Alberta visiting my brother and my nephew. And I was just talking to him about how I just wanted to travel the world. And he's like, just do it. You can do it. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And I went wow. on google and typed in cheap flights and originally i was just planning to go to thailand but then i was like you know what if i'm gonna go to thailand for like a month let me see what else i can do in a month and then i ended up booking thailand bali paris and amsterdam yeah on wow. one go and i got a really good deal so i just looked at it as a really good personal investment to mm. just see the world come back and take away um but i also learned like how important it was to meditate and to kind of be present in the moment yeah. Instead of trying to live this life, because I went there with like a Super 8 camera, you know, a medium format in my, in my Leica. And I thought that I was going to be shooting all these beautiful, exquisite moments. I was going to be capturing all authentic lives. And what quickly struck me by surprise was how in-depthly involved I wanted to just be present without mm. technology. Like I wanted yeah. to just put the cameras down because there would be a moment where the sun's coming up. And I have to set up my medium format, want to take some 35 stills and then roll eight mil. And then I want to get some stuff on my iPhone. And I'm like, what am I doing? I had to slow everything down, you know? I like that you got all the way out there expecting to kind of, you know, come back and have this collection of photos and footage and stuff. But you kind of got there and said, nah, that's mm -hmm. interesting. 
you know? Yeah. And I, when I came back home, um, that was, I came back home with a whole new outlook on kind of what work actually was to me at the Mm -hmm. time, because, you know, we're, we're so often we're chasing the dream. We're chasing, you know, working, collaborating, creating beautiful images. But when I got back home, I started to realize that building stronger relationships was way more important than I, I I went into it very like conscious of important and healthy relationships, but like really maintaining and watering the people that you have closest to you. Right. So now like when I'm on set, I have a very tough time even taking out my phone um, just because I really want to be present with the people that I'm collaborating with. And like even, yeah, it's cool to show set stills and behind the scenes and all of those things. But that little bit of time that I'm isolating myself from building with someone else is vital to my growth. Um, right. And surprisingly, my camera doesn't work on my phone anymore. So I think it's a sign. <laughs> yeah. I think that's true, man. I think, um, I think people have this kind of idea that like, you know, it's sometimes you see filmmakers or, or directors or DPs who are, are kind of working with a ton of people, you know, throughout a year. And I think even as a DP, that's, that's even more common because you're working with you're working on more projects a year than say a director or a, an EP or something. Um, and you're, so you're, you're seeing a lot more directors, a lot more crew, production designers, producers, cast, whatever. So how do you practically keep your circle? You know, how do you kind of water that circle when, you know, you are meeting new people all the time or you are kind of being tossed around the country, you know? Um, I think what's, proven to work for me is just taking it at the speed that is right for the project. Um, just the way that I like to work as a cinematographer is very important to just keep the people that know what your intentions are very close at heart. Like my approach has to be accurate for the team that I'm working with. And usually if it doesn't work for the, the crew that I'm working with, I'll adjust my plan, but I'll try to persuade the likes of the powers that have those decisions to kind of look at it from my perspective, because right. I, I want to know at the end of the day, how well are we trying to communicate this image or how, how deep of the story are you trying to, to showcase? Right. So I try to do a lot of networking prior to the job. So if I get awarded a project, I'll typically reach out to most of the key positions and just introduce myself that way I can build a rapport with them prior to working with them. Right. And I just talk about life. Um, big is like family. I love talking about family with people. I love talking about love and what's beautiful and what makes them feel good. Um, I also love to talk about what are the strengths that they have? What are their weaknesses? That way we can both work towards each other's growth. Right. I think that's very, very important because in this world of social interactions, everyone's so caught up in the noise. So I find that, you know, on set, I just kindly ask that everyone has a room tone voice so that everyone can work in a very comfortable, safe place. Right. No yelling. Well, and so let me ask you this. What is your biggest pet peeve on set? My biggest pet peeve on set is when people are talking and they're not doing <laughs> their job. That actually is my number one pet peeve. I wonder if this is a DP thing. Cause I just talked to, um, Andrew Palermo yesterday oh, nice. and and we talked to um, James Laxton last like uh, last year mm-hmm. and all three of you guys said the exact same thing mm-hmm. just like chatter people talking like uh, in between takes while you're setting up whatever um, 
is is sort of like a a deal breaker for you. Huge. (laughs) It's like a very emotional thing for me to be on set. So I take it almost like a ceremony. Like it's like church to me, you know, because I spend 80% of my time really doing research and preparing myself to get to that position. Right. And then when I'm there, I kind of want to execute it as as accurately as it needs to be. And when people are talking, yes, it's like, I'm happy that you're enjoying yourself, but you're also taking away from the priority that you're here to engage in. Yeah. Dude, one thing that I noticed when, when we were working together just for those two days is your level of like visual commitment is sort of like, um, it's a little frightening to me, but I loved it. And what I mean by that is like the visual baking in of, of, of the, the look, Mm -hmm. um, was so interesting to me. Do you, could you talk a little bit about, you know, for example, we were, we were just stacking so many things I had never heard of just to filter through just to, uh, do you, you remember? What yeah, we no, absolutely. I remember everything. Um, I think it's very important for me, um, to do a lot of research based on the look, um, that the director is right. going for. And I knew kind of going into it prior to, shooting in new orleans that the look was supposed to feel very real authentic rugged um and very sweaty and very hot right, right. and i knew that if there was going to be more than one camera rolling on these takes that it was going to be a thing that i didn't want to have to deal with in the grade so just stacking you know warming filters and softening filters it was something that i was very um, intentional with especially shooting darker skin tones Um, And then looking at the weather that we had to deal with, we never had, we had really interesting overcast. And I think that when shooting darker skin tones, it's very important to keep warmth in, in the back of your mind. Right. And I just wanted to create a very unique look because I think a lot of the work that I'm doing and I want to be doing, it has to have a very distinct taste to it. Right. And um, that's just the way I like to work with directors. So I try to do a lot of research on different ways to affect the final image and then that way, when it goes to color, the colorist might look at it and say, well, what do we need to do? It's like, well, we just need to adjust a level right, here, right. a tone here. You know, be that was the thing is I, when you see, you know, specifically in my feelings, um, when you see that music video, it's pretty close. And uh, I can say that because I was there. It was pretty close to what we shot Yeah, as far as just the look of it. I think there's some contrast adjustments, but, um, but it worked the, really well. Right, the warmness, the the, I think that I I find that just very interesting, like how you got to the place where you, you know, you kind of decided, not for uh, in my feelings specifically, but just in general, like that's how I want to approach like a commitment to to my role as the DP of like getting it actually in camera as much mm-hmm. as possible. How do you differentiate between when to do that and when not to do that? Typically, it comes down to a lot of research. I think when I look at what I'm adding an effect or using a specific lens or a different format or a different aspect ratio, it's all intentional. And I think it's important to just convey that message. And I'd worked with um, Karina, obviously, prior to that. So the relationship that we had was always, how can we kind of keep this, keep people on their toes when we release something new? And it offered itself very well to the project because it really conveyed the feeling of being in your feelings right. of the warm, the high energy, the high active environment that we were in. And it was a very sweaty place. And to do that in camera, it would be easy to just dial in a white balance, but to add an additional layer to that 
affected the image in a much different way to just bring out the contrast in the sky or make the golds pop or make the the teeth shine or the graphics or the people's hair. It just offers something totally different. Yeah. It has this, it has this feeling of like, um, you know, cause I live in New Orleans. I, I, I go to the city very often. So it, it feels exactly like how you captured it. Oh, it's awesome. just so interesting to, to see the way that just little, th- little decisions, very specific decisions can actually um, get you super, super far mm-hmm. in, the, in the look. And that's super interesting. Well, I'd also done a lot of research on New Orleans and what had been shot there right. prior. And I quickly realized that a lot of people that shot in New Orleans tended to work so heavily on the neon palette. And mm. I love bicolor contrast. I think it's just very natural to the eye. So to kind of keep people guessing as to what the source is or what the, the look feels like, right. I kind of play with the elements outside of my world a little bit more. Like, look, take the production design into effect. And there's a lot of yellows, there's a lot of browns, there's a lot of brick, there's a lot of old forsaken wood that's been dried out and dampened. Right. So kind of bringing those up on the exterior palette helps the integral image at the end of the day. Right. That's a good point to kind of when, if you are going into an unknown environment to look at the environment for the visuals, not always just a lot, a lot of times I feel like, especially me, I mean, I do this as a director, I impose a look onto something, you mm-hmm. know, instead of letting a DP kind of figure it out and then pulling that from the environment. I think that's a good kind of reversal way to, to create a look for a film, you know, totally. How did it work to kind of find that relationship and then again and again sticking together? You know, um, I think the relationship that I have with Miss Evans is one that's very special and rare because I had, you know, I'd started working with her very earlier in her career. I'd shot pretty much everything up until now um, with her. And I've known her since she was, I think, 18 years old. And wow. I remember shooting the first project with her um, for a friend of ours as a collaboration. And she quickly just took control of the project and swayed it in a much bigger direction. And I remember just going into this this in, uh, this project with her, and she was just like, I just want to make a beautiful love story. So we pulled you know, a million references, like so many references, and we watched things, and we talked about what it was like to be in a relationship. We talked about the upsides and the downsides. And when we did the project, we did it for like zero dollars. I pulled a friend's camera, went around the city, and we shot for three days. And she took that back to her to her powers that be, and they loved it. And the relationship that we had, the working relationship, was just so organic, and it just worked very well. So every project that we would approach, it was, hey, we've got another one. Let's sit down and really do the whole thing all over right. again. So we both kind of really worked to each other's strengths and really brought up an interesting image every time. But at the end of the day, we also kept the story at the forefront of how we were going to approach the stories. Before you left uh, New Orleans, you were kind of on the cusp of maybe taking a, a TV uh, show. Did you oh, end yeah. up taking that? I ended up doing the TV show. Surprisingly, the show, we prepped the show for two months. And on Friday, we got the call from the network and funding had been pulled. So yeah. we lost <laughs> the project on the Friday. We were supposed to go to picture on the Tuesday. And by the Thursday of that week, I got offered another show which I ended up completing. And I'm very excited about that show. What's that one called? It's called Detention Adventure. It's a TV show about kids and the arc of discovery through the act of 
bad things that lead you up into detention as they discover Alexander Graham Bell's hidden laboratory in their Whoa. school. And we approached it. Like the director told me, you know, he wanted to keep kind of break the narrative of Canadian television. And I said, well, let's go ahead. Are you going to be okay with some of the things that I have to offer? And he said, let's do it. So I reference, you know, Stranger Things and Harry Potter and I bring like the Goonies into effect and just really try to play this narrative of young kids, Ark of Discovery. So it's a kid's show that feels like a very moody, darker TV show that most people on the Canadian side haven't seen. So it's going to, I'm excited for it. Did, how many episodes was it? It's 10 episodes. So how long was the production? We shot 10 episodes in, I think, 25 days, every day, 16 hours a day. And it was the best project that I had. Uh, it was one of the most interesting growth projects that I'd had. Wow. I brought on a lot of my, uh, my local team, and we just approached it very openly. And it was a very collaborative project. And what was ironic for me was the very first job that I'd ever been on set for with this production designer. She was a production designer on this TV show. And when I first met her, I was a PA. The second time I met her, oh, I was yeah. the DP. And that was like a five-year gap. So yeah. it was kind of serendipitous for me to have that full circle. And then I brought on like all of my keys that I started my career with when I was just a right. grip that came on as, as my keys. So the level of collaboration that they were had they had to offer was it was very rewarding trying to what were some of the boundaries that you guys kind of figured out for the show to kind of i mean 10 episodes in a little over 20 days is like sort of nonsense yeah it was uh, uh <laughs> it was a very archaic crazy. process it was interesting because it was the first two camera shoot that i'd done so i never really operated so for me it was great to take a step back to really isolate the images as as one and then help the director communicate what he wanted from that language that we were creating. Right. But the limitations were just that, like we were, we could have benefited from having two extra swings or two extra grips just to help us with setups. Um, the benefit to a, a lot of our stuff is we built an entire set inside of a gym of a school, so we were able to knock out four locations that were built inside the gym: um, an exterior location that was around the area, the interior location that was in the school. But a lot of every episode had an effect. It had a gag. So a lot of the time that we were spending was actually on building these gags and building these setups that were going to take a quite while to reset. Right. Um, that was a huge limitation to what we could do, as well as you know working to the benefits of the production company and the producers' requests. We had to kind of scale back on some of the items that I had wanted to use. But I think that's when the craft and the creativity comes into effect where you kind of have right. to use your problem-solving ability to execute what it is that you actually want to convey. Right. Um, so, yeah, like I, I, I wish I was able to shoot on three cameras, and I wish I had, you know, 15 more days. <laughs> right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> it always sucks to get bogged down in the editing process while you try to track down the soundtrack for your film. We've all been there, and so has the team at Musicbed. In fact, that's the entire reason why they built their platform. By collaborating with hundreds of artists, bands, and composers, they've made it easier than ever to find the perfect song for your film and get back to your editing. 
You can download a single song, get unlimited music with a subscription, or even create a custom song or score from scratch. Their roster is growing every day with more than 20,000 songs ranging from cinematic and electronic to indie rock and hip hop. To create your free account and learn more, go to musicbed.com. Plus, as a good listener, they're giving you one month of subscription for free or 20% off a single song purchase. Just enter promo code GOOD when you check out. Are you a second AC? Do you also vape mad clouds? Is your vaping starting to compete with your slating? Now, accomplish both at the same time with the new Vape Slate by Lemieux Company. The revolutionary Vape Slate offers the latest in vape technology and the most accurate time code on the market. Never be out of sync with your shot or your gnarly vape cloud again. A convenient soft sticks and second sticks feature makes sure that you can go the distance, take after take. Vape Slate comes in the most popular onset flavors, including grape, strawberry, shrimp dinner, and our proprietary flavor, Craft Table Surprise. Mmm, yummy. Get the Vape Slate by Lemieux Company, the same folks who brought you the Jib Crib and the Dolly Potty. Pay now with Visa, MasterCard, and Exposure Bucks. Use coupon code HUMANHAZER for 20% off. Clack, suck, and roll with the Vape Slate. Visit us online or on Instagram at lemieux.company. That's L-E-M-I. E-U-X dot C-O-M-P-A-N-Y So dude, when we were working together in New Orleans, we were you also kind of added an element of film, some eight millimeter stuff that Karina and um, the editor was actually shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have you do you have any kind of some recent film experience? I did a project in Jamaica on Super 16 Bolex, and I went down there with about, I think, 6,500 feet, and the intention was to shoot three music videos um, on 16, and I quickly realized that it wasn't the easiest thing to shoot on 100-foot rolls for a music video. Right. (laughs) So So 100-foot rolls... For people who don't know, don't know. Uh, so a four hundred foot roll gives you about eleven minutes of of sixteen mil. Yeah, and then so one hundred feet, you can imagine two and a half minutes, two and a half minutes with thirty second intervals so in between every take. <laughs> so I how long to, was the song? The songs are about three and a half minutes, three and a half to four minutes. So you couldn't do a, a full no. performance, right? No, and I liked that because it really made sh- it made sure that I had to get what I needed to get. So I was cranking. Basically, I broke down the songs um, where I just kind of played the song in 30-second intervals. And I said, okay, for every 30 seconds, I need to get a specific part of the song. And I need to know where I'm going to cut it and how I'm going to cut it. Right. That way I can build it in a seamless way. Um, right. And it worked really well. But what was the most difficult part of that whole process was changing the mag, where it was okay, we yeah. get through two minutes and then I need another 10 minutes, like five and a half minutes to change the mag. There's no rhythm, right? There's really, it breaks the rhythm. And what happens is it breaks the concentration of the talent. So it was the yeah. thing where I had to learn how to let them know, hey, this is film, but keeping their hopes up. 
it was a little bit easier for me once I said, once you see the image, it's going to be great. Um, which, right. which worked really well, but it was quite a nightmare shooting in Jamaica with film, cooling it, keeping it temperature right. uh, regulated. And yeah, we're traveling two and a half hours to like St. Thomas, which is the West in Jamaica and climbing up mountains for like 45 minutes to shoot for 45 minutes to an hour. And we probably got like four or five rolls, maybe six rolls out of those trips. But right. the, the visual look of what we got from that experience was incredible. And with digital, I think people forget that there is a, there's a there's a level of intimacy that needs to go into your art. Even if you're just trying to execute the vision, you still need to have intent behind your, your decisions. And I think in this digital world, people are quickly forgetting that you have to still craft your image, you know? Well, you have to... I think the, the digital world takes some of the the risk involved out of it totally you know and i think the risk for actors and for production design i mean all the way up i think the risk puts it you know it puts a level of intentionality and and specificity into everything because everything counts you know mm-hmm. um i was watching this movie uh called free solo yesterday have you seen that i haven't um it's about this free solos climber named uh, Alex Honnold. But he says like, it, it was interesting because it went into the documentary, went into like his brain work, like his, they did an MRI and uh, he actually doesn't feel fear in the same way that most people do. So um, like the part of his brain, the amygdala that would like, normally spark with like violence or fear or like a threat or whatever. He doesn't feel that at all. Wow. So he's able to, um, do these free solo climbs up, you know, El Capitan. Oh my gosh. I'm watching it right now. This is crazy. Yeah. It's, um, it's one of the most terrifying documentaries I've I've ever seen. I I had to stop it at one point because I was nauseous. I had to go to the bathroom because I thought I was going to throw up just be, and you, the thing is, you know, he's alive. Like I've seen an interview with him afterwards (laughs) and you're like, you're watching the end of it. But the thing is what he talks about in the documentary, why I brought it up is because he talks about the same thing of like the risk is what makes me feel alive. You know, Mm -hmm. like the risk makes me be perfect for a minute, Mm -hmm. for just a moment in time. I can be perfect. Um, And you wouldn't get that if it wasn't life or death, you know? And I was just like, Whoa, dude, like, and I think that's it is true. It's a little it's a little hyperbole, but like in the same way, even when you're thinking about a short film or something, you know, I feel like there needs to be a level of risk with that. Yeah, I'm a big you fan know? of that belief because I think that if it doesn't kill you, it actually makes you stronger. But it right. treats you, it makes you treat every situation as life or death. And it sounds a bit naive, but at the end of the day, I think you have to approach life with that that mindset where you're going to be prepared enough so that anything that's kind of coming at your way, you're prepared for, you know? You know, we're always kind of presented with, with work that um, we would say is less than exciting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have ways to kind of keep that, that energy into things that you're not really interested in? I try to approach everything with an open palette so that I'm not going into it jaded. Um, I think I like the idea of collaboration enough so that 
I can find something that I love in some right. work that I'm doing that's not super gratifying. Um, but I have to feel something from it. It has to spark an interest or it has to spark a new idea or a new challenge or right. something in the decision of why I'm going to join on. Um, but I do like to manifest a lot of the things that I have and are, have coming to me. Um, so that way I can look at any opportunity that comes or every opportunity that I take as something that is meant for me in that direction that I want to head in. Because there's a lot to learn from experiences that I didn't expect. And I think having that open mindset allows a lot of room for growth. Um, instead of just going into something and saying, that's not going to be what I want it to be because we're not cheating on this format. Right. Or, I think right. that's very a bad way to approach things. Um, so I try to just keep everything as open as possible before I just kind of change my mind last minute. Yeah. Do you like to feel like you are super rounded as a DP or do you have, would you rather kind of go straight into your, your zone? Uh, I'm discovering that actually, that's a really good question. I'm discovering a lot of what I really want to pursue with every job. And right now I think I have a well-rounded palette, but I never want to feel like I know everything. I know what I know, but I also know what I don't know. And I'm, I'm definitely open to the new challenges and risks that come to not knowing something because that's when I feel like a student and that's when I feel like I'm going to bring the most to the table when I have to do more research than I normally do just to approach something that I haven't done before. Cause you know, not going to film school made every job film school. So it allowed me to kind of take every risk that I was taking a little bit bigger where it's like, well, I can't, I can screw this up, but I have to screw this up in a way that I can fix it. So, so you didn't go I to film backwards. school? No, I didn't. Because what you just said is is what because I, I didn't go to film school as well. What you just said is kind of what I I find myself telling people as well. Of like, you're not. Sometimes your parents aren't going to be wealthy, mm-hmm. or sometimes you're not going to have the grades or whatever to get into, you know, the school that you went to or NYU or you know SCAD or something, mm-hmm. some art program or whatever. Um, but you have to create that film school for yourself. You know, totally. like there's ways that you can. So, you know, just knowing people in film school, what the general idea is that you, you make things. They, it's basically a place in which they make you make things and grade you and, and help you kind of collaborate with people in order to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can skip that and do it I for mean, yourself. We, we did. It is, right. And it's a lot, it's a little bit harder because I don't think you like the, how many years did we spend just doing things by ourselves? Too many. Yeah. I also, I, I spent a lot of time, um, before I even touched a camera, just asking a lot of questions, you know, like I kind of had this interesting arc of my discovery of a cinematographer over time as it's evolved with just asking questions and wondering how did they do that? And one thing that I take with me now, even still to this day, is just how I approach everything. Like, I started off as a PA on a really big film center job um, in Canada. There's a mm-hmm. production company that's called CFC that offers professional experience for people that are looking to gain more knowledge about the industry. And I came in as a PA, and by lunch I became a grip because I just at lunch I sat down with the DPs and the key grips, didn't know who they were, 
but I was just kind of eavesdropping on their conversations and they would constantly just be saying things. And I was like, oh yeah, I read that on Vimeo or I, I saw that on Google or something. Right. So you were and, already kind of interested in kind of searching on your own. Yeah. Like I had been shooting, you know, local videos on like my 7D, but I, I knew that I wanted to raise the level of production because I was tired of making this adequate this this compensation for my time when I was like I'm much more creative than people think I am but I just don't know the skills or I don't have the network so I had to put forth that energy to find the right community to learn from and right. after that experience I started working a little bit more in the industry as a grip and I'm really really big on research so I would go to these jobs and I I would ask questions not with the intent of knowing but with the intent of allowing someone that was teaching me to know that I was still learning from them because I think that's a really big thing for a lot of people coming up now. They come up and they just they think they know everything, but what you don't right. know is how someone wants something done. So if someone says, "Hey, you know, give me like a floppy or a sandbag on this thing," I'm like, "I can do that, but how would you like me to do it? Like, is right. there a specific way that you like to work?" Yeah, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people forget about when they're coming to, especially with a new relationship with a director or um a director to a cinematographer like you you gotta you gain all these experiences and this technical skill so that you can adjust it for anybody mm -hmm. how is for this specific story how how is it going to be done yeah exactly yeah i've had a lot of experience with that as well where i think people come to the job with the perfect picture of how it's going to be and you quickly right. realize that those are the people that are going to be challenged to collaborate but I think in those times, that's when I kind of heavily weigh on my ability to really get to know the person, because then you yeah. find that a lot of the time they're probably nervous or they're probably not as prepared as they think they are. So they want to just pull from their past experiences. That's true. So I test them and I just ask them questions about, you know, oh, you like this, but why do you like that? Like, what is this bringing to the job? And I like to work with everyone that's in a position of decision-making so that I can you quickly realize before they even set down that lampshade, if I'm going to go with a red palette and they're bringing in like a blue, right. A blue lampshade or something, it's, it might not work. So I quickly ask them, Hey, this is where, this is what my plan is and what's your plan look like and how can we kind of collaborate on the end all be all vision that the director is going for. Right. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Um, your conversations early on, even from, music videos to the TV show. What are those conversations like with uh, an art director to kind of coincide with your cinematography? Um, I think the art director after I get a job is actually the first person that I call um, because they usually have, they're probably brought in before I am sometimes. So it's good to know where they're thinking or just to have a conversation about the project without specific technical um, and just kind of talk about the project, what the look is that they're trying to convey or what the conversation that they have had. Right. But I usually ask them, you know, what type of things do you have access to or what type of things are you bringing to the table? Or, you know, have you done a job like this? What were some of the difficulties that you've arised? I kind of have that conversation prior to having our conversation about the project because I don't like to spend too much time talking about the project because then you go into it with this this already made image of what it should be instead of going there and kind of reacting to the elements that are there naturally. Right. Cause what right. if you go there and you think it's going to be sunny and all of a sudden it's overcast, but you didn't plan for that because you never had a conversation about the actual feeling of what we're capturing. Um, so typically if I'm talking to a DIT, I usually like to bake in a look or just have him look at things and kind of give me a heads up and say, Hey, you know, you did this at this degree or, or something, or if I'm working with my ACs or my gaffer, I always love to talk about 
what type of quality of light that I'm going for, why I'm going for that, or what type of landscape of a job that we're doing. Is it running gun? And I just need you guys to be a little bit more prepared for something that might get thrown at us because, you know, I might put up something high and I want to bounce it or I want to diffuse it a little bit more. So always have something on standby. I have something ready to go. Do you see any kind of uh, cinematography trends happening right now? Right now, it's kind of hard. Yeah. Let me ask you this: mm-hmm. Do you have any? Do you see any cinematography um, trends that uh, sort of piss you off? <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a better question. Yeah, I think uh, this is a really tough question because recently I've been, I've just taken a step away from looking at right, other people's sure. work. Um, recently, because I used to binge watch everything. Um, that's how I kind of learned and got to know the landscape really well. But right now, I think the trend of film is a little annoying. It's it's not pissing me off. I love it because I love the look of film. The actual, the actual film, like celluloid. Yeah, like I'm not loving people just throwing film at a project because it looks cool and that's the fad. Like right. Two years ago, it was anamorphic. Two years before that, it was like super eight and vhs and all these mixed media formats but i think when it's not done with intention and they can't answer a question as to why they did something it really irks me but it also is the different types of projects like some things will lend it to the project naturally um i think there's one thing that i'm not really thinking of that really drives me crazy i think the idea of sharing work just to share work for me sometimes bothers me because there's people that are just promoting everything that they're doing on set right. and they're not actually doing the work. Like they're on set snapping photos and posting to their social media, but they're not actually creating something that is timeless. And for that's just how I look at work. Like right. I like to make sure that the work is done with intention. And a lot of people are just quickly just oversaturating the market of the art of the, art, of the art form, both cinematography and just the overall aesthetic of of what it is to be working in this industry. Well, it's also becoming about a single a single image a lot more than oh, the stills um, than I would like. Yeah, totally. I think that actually is another thing that really bothers me: just people complaining about budget. I think like budget for me doesn't it matters, but it's not the end all be all thing because right. I think a lot of people are like, yeah, if I just had more money, I'd get another shot in, or I'd do it differently, but. Right. That bothers me because at the end of the day, you're going to do it for this. You're doing it for what is available. And I think people crutch themselves on things that they can't control and they don't adapt to the, to the lay of the land. And that, right. that really irks me because I know what it's like to have absolutely nothing to go into an opportunity. And I think those for me are the best opportunities where you have less things, you have a much smaller skeleton crew and you're forced to create. And that's where you get to see the level of experience that people have on set when they can't, they get flustered and right. it's like, are you breathing? You know, you know, do you know why you like that more though? That's maybe because that's the way I learned. I learned out of the lack of resources. That's that my whole career has been lack of resources. So I had to learn how to quickly work with what was available. Like if I don't have a stand, how else can I get the light up? I've got a bunch of other tools and a bunch of other elements that I have available to me how crafty can i get and that's just learning kind of what you have to, it's, it's, your, it's your palette you know i think the more you gain as an as a craft maker and a filmmaker you really learn how to make use with what you have and i think a lot of things that i've seen that irk me are just people sharing their work and then you talk about it 
like online, they'll share their work and they're so excited to share it. And then you speak to them in person. It's like, oh, what was that experience like? And the first thing that comes out of their mouth was, oh man, like I like that, but like it could have been so much better. It's like you have to really embrace the work that you've completed as something that you've done and you're proud of. And I think that really bothers me sometimes when people aren't proud of what they've accomplished or what they've been able to achieve. Because at the end of the day, you did it and you put your name on it and it's out and people are judging your work off of that. What's, um, let's end it with this. What's the one thing that you would say to a DP um, to, to just implement on set to, to have a little bit more success with um, just something you found, whether it's you know certain kind of things that you set up for yourself or sort of mental state or whatever? What's, what's a, a piece of advice for a young filmmaker the, that would be more best, successful? The best piece of advice that I've kind of learned works really well for me is I say good morning to everybody. I say there good morning go, to man. absolutely you it right there, dude. everybody uh, on set. <laughs> because I love that. I mean, that's perfect. Yeah. Say <laughs> good morning. And when you leave, say thank you to everybody. Say thank you. That's really, that's all you need, man. Yeah, it goes far. This episode was mixed by Christian Stratko, or as I like to call him, my dear friend, Christian. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at goodthepodcast.com. 